रोशनी का कारवा दिस पॉडकास्ट इज ब्रॉट टू यू बाय बैरियर ब्रेक सॉल्यूशंस प्राइवेट लिमिटेड एंड स्कोर फाउंडेशन Hi my name is George Abraham and welcome to Iway Conversations my guest today is Penny Melville Brown from Hampshire in the United Kingdom hi penny welcome good morning george i believe uh, you began your professional career with the royal navy i had an absolutely stupendous career in the royal navy and in the days when i joined it was the women's royal naval service um this was back in oh 1977 i think and um in those days women didn't go to sea um they were only just getting into proper professional jobs in the um navy because in the past they predominantly the officers had been looking after the wrens who did a lot of the much more exciting jobs so what was uh, your specific roles in the navy Oh, a huge huge variety. So I started off I was doing NATO intelligence in Naples, Italy, and then I came back and did home defense and war planning because that was in the days of the Cold War. Then I went on and did corporate public relations in the Ministry of Defense in London, and there I was responsible for all the public relations for the women's royal naval service as we still were and the queen alexander's royal naval nursing service the quorns and it was their centenary actually um i went on and did the university royal naval units and i started off with four units at different universities in the uk each with their own fast patrol boat and my job was to um increase the number so i doubled them got more fast patrol boats more units set up in universities recruited more young people and When then you- i had a wonderful opportunity um i i was the navy had decided that they needed a female barrister they'd never had a woman barrister in all those centuries since the navy was set up so i had the chance to do that and i went off and did um a year at law school and then a year of a bar school where i learned to be a barrister and then i did pupillage and then i went back to the navy and i did my first job as um a naval barrister so i was doing courts martial where i was prosecuting and defending and i was also supervising in a legal capacity the biggest naval uh equivalent of a magistrate's court um and then by then my eyesight was starting to fail um i went on to do another legal job and i was the staff legal advisor to an admiral so we were running um the 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 the, the sort of disciplinary legal side of life for a large number of ships and shore establishments but by then my eyesight was really failing um and so i was off sick for oh over a year um having some pretty drastic 
um, treatment for my vision, which failed with my right eye. So I gave up with my right eye. I was still just about able to drive and I went back to work. And then I was running um, the uh, headquarters of flag officer surface flotillas. So we were responsible for all the ships that were on the surface across the world and in the UK. Um, and I was, I lost the sight in my left eye um, where it was, it was going, um, but I managed to hang on. I was promoted to commander. And in those days, there were only about eight women commanders in the Navy. And by then we had been amalgamated into the Royal Navy. Um, I went on to do another job, which was all about strategic manpower in the services. But I could see that I was not going to get promoted. Um, and so I was eventually medically discharged as a war pensioner. You spent about 20, 22 years in the Navy. And then you, yes. uh, you uh, as you said, you were discharged. So uh, once you were discharged and you had lost your sight, uh, how did you kind of reorient yourself and what was it that you did? Well, let me just step back a bit then into yeah. my time in the Navy, because I think, as I described, I was losing my sight for quite a long time in the Navy. Right. And in the UK, um, the British military are not subject to the equality legislation when it comes to the employment of disabled people for all sorts of sensible reasons. Um, but actually they were incredibly accommodating. So they went to great lengths to get me adaptive um, software on my computer. So in those days I was using screen magnification. Um, they helped me in all sorts of ways with my travel because of course I had to stop driving. So they enabled me to keep working in the Navy. Yeah. At, a, at, at commander level, right. um, doing important things. Well, I thought they were important. They were, you know, in the big scheme of things, they were probably pretty trivial. But I was um, redesigning the performance appraisal system of 37,000 people, which in terms of India probably sounds like, you know, a suburb. In the Navy, it was a lot of people. Um, so I was doing important things and I was still blind. Uh, and and um, I was using a white cane, a white stick, when I was in uniform. Right. I had to stop wearing my tricorn hat so that I, people knew that I would not salute them when I was moving around because I did not know whether I had to salute them or they had to salute me. Right. So it was just yeah. by not wearing a, cat, a hat, um, we got rid of that problem. So I was pretty, um, I had very little sight when I was still in the Navy. Yeah. Um, but what I learned, and this is probably the most important thing, is that just because I couldn't see didn't mean I couldn't do an absolutely first class job. Right. And that gave me huge confidence. And I think that was my main learning point about gaining a disability and learning to live with it, is that actually my brain had not changed, my capacities, my capabilities had not changed one jot. Absolutely. I just needed to do things in a slightly different way. Absolutely. So I could see that um, I was going to not be able to continue my career in the Navy. 
So I, while I was still in the Navy, I started to broaden my CV, get other activities onto that CV. I um, was one of, I was the secretary for Hampshire for the Prince's Trust. Yeah. I was doing other things so that when I left the Navy, um, I was going to be able to hopefully apply for jobs where people could see that I, I, was, I was capable. But of course, in those days, and we are talking a long time ago now, right. um, great civilian society was much more wary about people with disabilities and employing them. Right. So in the end, I decided that I was never going to get a job. So I set myself up as a disability consultant on the basis of what I'd learned and what I could make up. Because being a lawyer, you know, you could just make things up, really. Absolutely. So within two days of taking off uniform, I was a disability consultant and I was into my first paid work within those two days. And I did not look back. Um, a year later, I set up my own business, Disability Dynamics. Yeah. And because I'd had such difficulty trying to find work, yeah. and I realized that there were lots of people who in, um, I, I, I was in early middle age, but in this country, lots of people in later middle age, from their sort of 50s onwards, lots of people are acquiring disabilities that are going to jeopardize their ability to work. And I decided that those were the people, um, not, not just that group, that age group, but anybody with a disability, I wanted to help them to get back to work because I think work is the greatest gift that anyone can have. It gives you financial um, and mental independence. It means that you are a person in your own right. If you know of anyone with vision impairment who needs guidance on living life with blindness, please share the IWA National Toll-Free Helpline number 1-800-5320-469. The number is 1-800-5320-469. So uh, you talked about uh, disability dynamics. Uh, so what was the kind of uh, uh, actual day-to-day operations that you were involved in and what was your success rate? Well, I started off by doing a lot of um, policy advice yeah. and strategic um, planning yeah. with government departments. Um, I did a lot of training in the public, private and voluntary sectors um, really just trying to get them to understand more about disability. And I wasn't just confined to visual impairment. I was, I was considering all aspects of disability. I did a lot of research with, um, we, we have a national census yeah. every 10 years. So I was making sure that I was well versed in proper government data so yeah. that I could talk to them about um, the reality of life, not just my personal perceptions. Yeah. And obviously, if you're going to implement in influence government strategy, they want to know actual data. Um, but also, I was able to talk from personal experience, and I was gathering experience and um, th- those life stories that make disability come alive, 
and so other people understand it. So I was doing a lot of that. And then I was asked to chair a little not-for-profit organisation, which was about promoting self-employment for disabled people. And I got very inspired by that. And this organisation was so tiny, it was never going to be able to do delivery. And in fact, I talked to Margaret Hodge, who was then the government minister responsible for disabled people. And we sort of agreed that um, I was going to need to deliver self-employment projects as um, a, a sort of figurehead to show what was feasible for disabled people. And that's what I went on and did. And I did it under the umbrella of disability dynamics because by then I had um, a track record. And so I was going to be credible for bidding for projects and funding. And that's really, you know, a, a fundamental thing. But at the same time, I was doing a whole range of public appointments. So I was um, doing things with the Department for Work and Pensions, the Ministry of Defence, the European and World Blind Unions, um, the Learning and Skills Council, a whole whole raft of other um, opportunities because I was working on the basis I would do one third paid work through my little business. And it was a tiny business. I do one third of my life through public appointments and another third through pro bono voluntary work. And that's how I worked. Um, And then we went on and um, developed self-employment projects for disabled people. Um, And actually, I focused up in Derbyshire, which is a long way from Hampshire. Um, It would take me about five hours on the train to get up there. But um, it was also an area where we had very high levels of deprivation and very high levels of disability. And so it was a perfect place to test the ideas that I was developing um, with some excellent um, consultants and subcontractors who were themselves very experienced business advisors, but had also had lots of experience with working with other disabled people. Yeah, so uh, Penny, moving on, uh, you are at the moment very well known across the world in the baking space. How did that happen? Well, I'd been running disability dynamics for, oh, 15 years or more. Yeah. Um, And uh, this was, in fact, it was longer than that. And I was looking for a new way of um, trying to persuade the general public and employers in particular that just because you have a disability doesn't mean you can't do really adventurous things, new things, or just do what everybody else does. Yeah. And for years, I've always made um, sort of little Christmas hampers for my friends and family to go with their main Christmas presents. So there'll be um, marmalades and jams and chutneys and liqueurs and cakes. Yeah. And one year back in 2016, I was making sort of 50 Christmas cakes, which doesn't everybody. Yeah. And somebody yeah. said, well, that's really unusual and even more unusual when you're blind. Yeah. And I thought, well, perhaps this is a good vehicle to show people that, you know, blindness wasn't stopping me doing what I wanted to do in life. 
And so my brother had some time and he came and um, shot a video of it. Yeah. And it was, I cannot tell you how embarrassingly amateur that video looks now in <laughs> retrospect. Right. But we were doing our best and I wasn't doing a very great job, but I was a bit nervous and all the rest. Um, so we made a video of um, me making the cakes and then another one of me doing all the de cake decorations. Um, and that's where Baking Blind started. And I did a few more with him. And then my, I was quite enjoying it. And I was hoping that I would just show people that I could do, still do stuff. And then I got an email and it was from this organization in San Francisco called Lighthouse. Yeah. And they were looking for visually impaired people from across the world who had ambition. And it was the Holman Prize. Yeah. And they had just started the Holman Prize that year in 2017. And um, so they asked me, you know, they were obviously sending out just a round robin to anyone they could find, saying, right. come and apply to the Holman Prize. Right. And so I thought I would, and I did. And uh, now that you brought up the Holman Prize, you are one of the early winners of the Holman Prize. So maybe this is a good time for you to share with us uh, what exactly the Holman Prize is and what is the process. And uh, what did you do with the Holman Prize? Okay. Well, the Holman Prize, I, I, you know, hold on to your seats, it's $25,000, right. which sounds enormous. Right. Um, but actually, it doesn't go into your pocket. It's right. to do something. Right. And you have to devise um, an idea, a project, um, a concept, where you are hopefully going to make a difference in the world of visual impairment and in the world. Yeah. Um, and it's all in um, memory of a chap called James Holman. Yeah. And I had no idea who this fellow was. And so we did a bit of research. And he turned out to be a Royal Navy lieutenant who had served in the, on the ships in um, the early, uh, let me just think, 1800s. So he had also been in the Navy, like me. Yeah. And we'd almost certainly had the same eye condition, which is uveitis. Um, and we had both been what we call war pensioners because um, we, we had lost our sight because of our military service. So that was, that was um, an amazing coincidence. So that sort of inspired me to think I, I, I need to do something creative. So the first thing I had to do was a 90-second video of me saying what I would like to do if I won this money. And so that got you through the first bit. And then if they liked your pitch, and that's what it was, it had to be a good pitch of saying what you wanted to do, um, then you had to go and write your project plan. And that wasn't just writing on a sheet of A4, um, you know, I've got this great idea and this is what I want to do. It was much more involved than that. So you had to look at what the planning was, what the budget was, what the timescale was. Um, at one stage, I had to get references so that they could see from other people that I had, you know, the capability. I wasn't just sitting there at home making it up in my own mind. Some people who were in the industry that I wanted to be active in um, were 
thought that I was capable of doing it. So I had a professional chef and a professional filmmaker both give me references. Um, they happened to be people I knew, but they were standing back and looking at, could Penny do this? Um, I, I had to do all sorts of other things. Um, because I decided I was going to do a worldwide tour, because I wasn't going to just sit at home, I was going to follow James Holman, who in his day became the most famous travel writer of his time. I wanted to travel too. So I had to have a whole network of people across the world who were willing to support me and enable me to cook in their countries. And if you remember, George, you were one of the people I was in contact with at the time, but we weren't actually able to make India a possibility for my world tour. But I went, ended up um, with contacts completely at random in America, Costa Rica, China, Australia, and Malawi in Africa. And that's what my world tour turned out to be. So I had to do this project plan. Um, I then had to do interviews with the team. I then had all my proposals being reviewed by um, real leaders across the world in the blind community. Um, and then I had further interviews um, and eventually I was one of three winners. So this it wasn't just, you know, think of a good idea, write it on a piece of paper and send it off and they might pick it out of a hat like a raffle. It was much more um, <clears throat> intense and much more thought through. But, you know, for $25,000, um, they wanted to make sure that they were getting a product that was going to be worthwhile. And I have to say that um, it cost me personally an awful lot more than that, probably double that um, of my own time, my own costs to do it. But for me, you, can, you might hear from how I'm talking, this was a crusade. I wanted to um, really take a message out across the world and I haven't finished it yet, but um, it's an ongoing crusade to change people's attitudes. To support our work with the blind and visually impaired, you can visit the donate page on our website www.scorefoundation.org.in Please note www.scorefoundation.org.in Penny, I'd like you to talk about some of the experiences that you might have had while you traveled across the world. Share some of the standout experiences. The standout experience. And there were many adventures. There were two life near fatal events during the um, tour. And that'll all be in the book that comes out next spring. Right. But I think probably the most important that other people can learn from is that if you have shared skills, it will break down barriers. And you may find the same with your cricket. But for me, going as a blind person into a professional kitchen where I had a professional sighted chef who was clearly terrified that this blind person was coming to come in, 
possibly chop off fingers, kill them, and, you know, have awful accidents. Um, but actually, as we sat there or stood there, chopping, doing things, sharing skills, sharing knowledge, you could hear this person suddenly realize that this was just another cook standing alongside him or her, quite capable, very knowledgeable, um, learning from each other, and that my blindness completely disappeared. And I'm sure you find exactly the same when you are talking cricket or other skills with sighted people, that once they know that you are capable, you are knowledgeable, you are confident, that the fact that you've got a disability is a complete irrelevance. So uh, when you were traveling, uh, say you went to Australia, Malawi, the US, uh, what were the kind of events that you were involved in so that more and more people could see what you were doing? Well, we were videoing it all. So all the videos are on my YouTube channel. Yeah. That's the first thing. Right. Um, I was doing media activities in each of the countries. Um, I was talking to people. So I spoke to the National um, Association of Blind People in Costa Rica. Um, I talked to the International Women's Group, which were consuls general and top businesswomen in Chongqing, in yeah. China. Yeah. I yeah. talked to um, military trainees in Australia. So I talked to young people at a school in Chongqing. So you, you can hear me. I, I, you, know, I, you, you can hardly stop me. I will talk to anyone. That's right. what I really do. do. Um, I did a big presentation um, to 500 people at a conference in San Francisco. Yeah. So that's what I was trying to do is one, show them through the videos, yeah. two, capture them through the social media, and three, talk to them um, in their own venues where they were comfortable and they could listen to this blind person. And I've been doing a lot more public speaking back in the UK um, since then. So to, uh, to, to promote what you're doing and, uh, you know, the world is a huge place, uh, you know, uh, do you have professional agencies that actually uh, kind of promote your work and promote you to a, onto various platforms or you do it yourself? I regret to say I have to do it all myself. So actually with a visual impairment and trying to manage social media, is almost impossible. So I now have a husband who helps me. Um, getting that traction, that international traction, is, is quite challenging. Um, I've been recovering from a big accident that happened a few years ago, just after the world tour. Yeah. Um, and that has completely brought my work activities as far as the business was concerned to a halt. I've managed to do a little public speaking since then. Um, but in reality, um, I'm pretty lucky to be alive. I'm even luckier not to be paralyzed from the neck down. So um, I'm very grateful that I'm still able to operate. I've spent that time which is some years now writing um, and doing my YouTube channel 
um, doing, I, I do Facebook. And so each week, you know, you've, you've got COVID over there. I've been um, blogging and um, writing my COVID cookbook because it's just given me a little joy. And hopefully I'm sharing a little pleasure with a few other people um, as I keep going. Um, but I have been rebuilding my life again for about the second, third or fourth time. Um, so I, I'm looking forward, I hope, to getting this book finalized and printed and uh, onto uh, an ebook. I'm looking forward perhaps to doing more public speaking. I'm looking forward to just sharing my experiences with more people in the future. Um, so next year is looking very positive, I think. This uh, book that you mentioned, you, I think, mentioned two books. No, I, I, I don't know whether I'm right. Uh, one is your COVID cookbook and the other is something like a memoir. Yes. The, the, the COVID cookbook, really, I'm just blogging it, putting it on Facebook so anybody can find it. And it's all free. Um, yeah. and it's just what is hitting me each week and a recipe slung on the back. Um, the, the book I'm hopefully going to publish next year is the story of um, my Holman Prize world tour. And interleaved with that is my experience of blindness and my, my own history, and then the survival of the accident and what's gone on from there. But I'm also, if anybody's interested in it, I'm about to publish in early December um, my free Christmas recipe booklet, which what I've been doing over the last uh, ooh, 10 months is I've been doing online cookery demonstrations for our local um, Hampshire blind community, and they've been videoing them. So I'm publishing all the recipes and with all the links to those videos and some other videos I've done. And I'm just going to try and send them out. You know, I'll put them in an email to you so you can send them out to anybody. Sure. Um, it's just an opportunity to me for me to say happy Christmas to anyone I can. And it's a little book. It's only about 20 pages, but I've done it as a Word document. So I hope it's as accessible as possible for as many people as possible. Well, uh, Penny, uh, thank you very much for giving me the time and the privilege and pleasure of speaking with you. Um, wish you the very best going forward. Thank you, George. This podcast was brought to you by Barrier Break Solutions Private Limited and Score Foundation. Shanika, <laughs> <laughs>